All right, here we go. Um, we are going to start at uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, but I wanted to just remind you where we're coming from in chapter 4, where Paul says that we are earthen vessels, we're jars of clay, we're carrying this important message to the world of the gospel. And as a result, we're going to be persecuted and afflicted and all these terrible things are going to happen to us, but we're not going to be crushed, we're not going to be defeated. So that's important to understand. And then he wraps that up and leads us into five, which is connected to four by saying in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. We have a hope that's in the gospel. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. And then he just leads right into chapter 5. It's terrible that there's, I go off on this all the time, it's terrible that there's a chapter break there because Paul just continues. And we see a chapter break and we think he's done with that and he's moving on to something new. But really he's just continuing this whole thought process. So uh, we'll read 5, 1 through 5 to get us started. You're going to see it feels like he's repeating a lot of stuff. And And I'm even going to say some things that are a repetition of a little bit about last week, maybe say them different. But he writes, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, so now he moves into a whole different category of how he describes us. If the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house that is not made with hands, it's eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So it's interesting, Paul moves from describing us and our bodies as clay pots to now tents. So what's the similarity? Well, tent just implies temporary. Clay pots are temporary. Um, Tents imply that it's perishable. You notice he contrasts uh, our earthly tents to the building that we're going to have. Our bodies are going to be buildings once we get to heaven. So um, the tent is perishable just like the clay pots are. So he's again continuing with this imagery that um, our temporal bodies are not designed to last forever. We need to to wrap our minds around that, which is kind of hard. I personally find verse 1 one of the most encouraging in all of Scripture. Uh, I'm 63, I know for a fact through experience and empirical evidence that our bodies break down. Dan, can I get an amen? Yes, okay, thumbs up, all right. You know, I said it last week, gravity wins, you know. I know all too well that when, here you go, some of you younger people, here's what you have to look forward to, okay. When things begin to hurt when you're my age, okay, Unlike in your 20s and 30s when it would go away, no, it just hurts now for the rest of your life. That's, you just live with it for the rest of your life. It just, 
I'm going to die in this condition of physically hurting all the time. But, but that's supposed to happen. And, and in fact, what Paul's trying to say is that it actually gets better once you shed this tent, once you shed this clay uh, pot, uh, this rickety vessel of bones. Now, what we need to understand is that our bodies weren't designed and created like this in the first place. The reason we're in this situation is because of the original sin, and that's been imputed to us, and that has corrupted everything. Not corrupted as in integrity, but corrupted uh, everything is going in this world is going through atrophy. Everything is atrophying. Okay, and so it wasn't originally designed like that, but then sin entered the the condition. Okay, and so the corruption is not like I said integrity. It's 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 corruption and breaking down and catastrophic catastrophic atrophy. But God provides this way out through Jesus through the resurrection. The resurrection is really important because it. It's the seal, it's the guarantee of our new bodies when we meet Jesus, okay? Uh, the good news of the cross is that the resurrection, in the resurrection, we have new eternal bodies that follow. Now that's something I can get excited about and I can hope in, and one of the reasons I can get excited and hope in it is because it's beyond my ability to achieve it. Uh, our temporal bodies in Christ will be replaced with an eternal, glorious body. Um, I wish other people would get more excited about this. Maybe it's just because I'm in my 60s now that I get excited about it. And when I was in my 30s, I didn't, I didn't care. I figured I was going to live forever and run forever and all that. But, but that's not the way it goes. But isn't this exactly also what he goes on to say in verses 2 through Paul? Paul nails it. He, I mean, he, he unpacks this. Groaning and grumbling, he said. Okay, let me give you some contemporary groaning and grumbling that I've experienced, okay? Co-pays and deductibles. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I used to never meet my deductible. Now, last, like the last three or four years, I keep meeting my deductible. And, and Shelby, our oldest daughter, who's a PA, says, that's good news. You can go in in, in October, November, and December and get, get operations, and they're basically free. It's like, that's the good news I have to look forward to now at this stage in my life? Okay, you know. But groaning and grumbling, LA fitness and running on the canal and spin classes and walking in the mountain preserves and orange theory, trying to head off the inevitable. Okay, Paul knows how painful this is, but he gives us the good news. We get these new, beautiful, eternal, heavenly bodies. And then you look at verse 5. Uh, God loves us so much that through Christ he has prepared for us for all of this, and his guarantee is that he's given us his Holy Spirit. I'm about to go all T.D. Jakes on you now. I'm kidding, I'm not going to, but... By the way, I like T.D. Jakes. Do you all know who T.D. Jakes is? Yeah, he's on TV, but I've been to conferences where he's been a speaker. He's fantastic. Now, I know there, we might have some theological issues with him, but he's, he's really good at leadership stuff. Anyway, um, but it is true that the evidence of this reality of the Holy Spirit is that uh, we live life supernaturally now by the power, illumination, and guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's the um, core value of Redemption Church. We have seven core values. It's the one that's the most misunderstood or, or, or not really even understood at all 
uh, by most people when they read it the first time. Uh, the core value is uh, we live life naturally, supernaturally. In other, words, in other words, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you can't but naturally live a supernatural life lived by the filling and the guidance and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that even that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. So that sealing by the Holy Spirit means you can't lose your salvation, which is also uh, good news. Jesus said that he was, when he was leaving, I, I've always found that fascinating in John 14, 15, and 16. He tells his disciples, I'm going away, but it's going to be better for you. And they're sitting there going, how is that? That doesn't make any sense. And he says, well, the reason I'm, send is, I'm sending you the paraclete. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And, and I would argue that you need to know that one of the primary reasons you're here now, that you're a part of Redemption Arcadia for however long it might be, is because of the Spirit's work in your life. I don't believe there are any accidents whatsoever. Okay? That's transformation. And I would argue it's the true trans, my brothers and sisters. Ha, ha, ha. Okay. <clears throat> and then, what's the best part of this? Verse 6, I think. So let me read 6 through 10. So we are always of good courage. We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay. So I, I would argue there's a sense in which we really do feel at home in these bodies that we have right now. In these perishing bodies, we kind of feel at home in them. But Paul reminds us to, that to be at home in these mortal, temporal bodies is to be away from the Lord in the sense that being with, the Jesus, being with Jesus is actually our true eternal home. So remember, even if we feel like we're at home in these bodies, remember what Schrader used to say, what we know trumps what we feel. So what we know is what's coming. That's what we place our hope in. But Paul is also saying that this is the only home we have until we are absent from the body but present with Christ. It's the only home we have, and so we're to make the best of it and follow God as long as we're here it just reminds me of Philippians 1. Let me read it to you. Philippians 1, uh, 18 through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. What is this? He's in prison in Rome. And even though he's there because he's preaching the gospel, he's saying this is actually going to turn out better than you might expect, better than I might uh, expect. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will... Uh, not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now and always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So they can even just execute me and I'll still be, I'll be, still be honoring Christ. For to me, to live, is die and, uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's the verse. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. He's saying, I can't lose. And, and, and he goes on to explain that. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell, as if he has a choice. I am hard-pressed between the, the two, 
Here you go. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary. On your account, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because, my coming to, because of my coming to you again. Uh, uh, some of you uh, probably remember Schrader, Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, and um, during those last couple of years of his life when he was battling with the cancer and the uh, heart trouble and all that stuff, and he was only in his late 60s, he wasn't very old, but he essentially couldn't do much of anything anymore, and I would visit him every Wednesday, and during those last two years, he would, he would talk about how you know, he's ready to depart and be with Christ. He's not sure why he's around, but apparently he has to hang around for something, and I'm like, how about this? that people are coming in and out of your house all day long, just wanting to be with you and hear your wisdom and hear what you have to say and hear your perspective on things. Um, so we do have to understand the reality of this tension. We love being here, but being here is also broken, and so we long to leave. So then the next question in this paragraph, what does it mean to walk by faith and not by sight? And then another question, is faith blind? So not one question, but two. What does it mean to walk by faith and not by sight? And is faith blind? So first question. Several passages in scripture remind us that the true realm of reality is in fact something we cannot necessarily see. That seeing and believing, uh, seeing is believing, you know how people say seeing is believing, if I see it, I be I'll believe it is actually not necessarily a helpful way to live when it comes to God. In fact, if you read John chapter 11 about uh, Lazarus, dies, goes into the tomb, he's in there four days, he's not dead, he's Texas dead, he's dead, okay? I mean, he's really dead, okay? All right? And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out and he's alive again. People there saw that. You would think that one out of every one person would say, I believe now. But they didn't. Many believed, but many others went away to try to figure out how to kill Jesus. So seeing isn't necessarily believing. So we, we say that, but it isn't necessarily true. Uh, here's something else. In Ephesians 6, Paul reminds us that our war is not with those things that we can see, the flesh and the blood that we have to deal with every day, no matter how evil it is, but rather our war is against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Hebrews 11.1 1 reminds us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So one of the reasons this is so important for us to understand is that it is by sight that Satan actually fools us. One of, one of Satan's favorite ways to fool us is by engaging our senses that we believe are 100% real all the time. We trust our senses more than we trust God. That's a problem. And I know it makes sense to. I do the same thing. But it's also a big part of what the Bible calls Satan's schemata or Satan's schemes, how he schemes against us. So here's the second question, is faith blind? So at the same time, saying, okay, it's really important to understand that reality exists in this other realm, okay? It's also important to understand that no, faith isn't necessarily blind either. 
the explanations and solutions for evil that the world has spent the last several thousand years coming up with and inflicting on the rest of us, how have they worked out for us? All of these, un, uh, all of these solutions for evil that have nothing to do with God, have they worked? Have they fixed what's wrong in this world? I would argue they haven't. I'll give you a couple of examples of the most popular ones. Uh, science and the scientific method. Here was the promise several hundred years ago. The scientific process, scientific methodology, science, eventually will answer every question, solve every problem, and eliminate all, so all, all suffering. How's that been working for us? Has that worked out for us? Okay, so that was the modern era, and everyone knows how stupid the modern era was. I mean, the modern era produced also the atomic bomb, right? So how stupid is the modern era? They're dumb. Now we're postmoderns. Now we're smart, right? Okay, so the postmodern era. Everyone is basically good. All truth is personal and contextually bound. Every person has something called the sovereignty of the individual. Therefore, no one has the right to tell me what I can and cannot do. So we legalize drugs, we give out needles, we create safe shooting up places. We, uh, criminal justice reform means to close prisons and defund the police. And I can identify as a cat if I want to. Now, if you think I'm kidding, just look that up on YouTube. Have, have, have you seen any of the videos? Okay. So it's not just that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Now I'm a cat trapped in a human body. And there are school systems going, yes, that's fine, and we have to honor that. Okay? So you have people grooming themselves like cats and meowing in classrooms. So they're licking themselves and meowing, and, and we're going, yes, that's good. Okay? That's solved a lot of problems. <laughs> okay? That's a, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. Have you ever noticed, you ever noticed uh, people who are sick, literally sick on social media, believe that the way to, to not be sick anymore is to have a greater social media presence? Have you noticed that? Okay, research has shown that that's true. People who are anxious, stressed, and suicidal because of social media, they truly believe that if they were just better at social media, then all their problems would go away. Okay? People who have devised political and governmental systems to solve all of our problems when they create more problems for us, they believe that what we need is just more political and governmental systems and, and solutions. We're going to double down on that. People who have spent billions and billions of dollars trying to solve a problem only to make the problem worse, worse believe that they just spent billions and billions more, then they would be able to fix the problem. We just need more money. Okay. See, here's, here's what I'm getting at. Biblical theology is the only one that rationally explains and solves all these problems. It's the only one that rationally does it. People are sinful. Our nature is decidedly <coughs> self-centered and destructive. And this is a supernatural existential phenomenon. And therefore, our, our only uh, external salvation and temporal transformation must come from a supernatural external intervention in our lives. And that would be the Holy Spirit directing us to the cross and the resurrection. 
directing us to the one place where we are saved from the eternal consequence of our sin, and our mind is transformed into one that can discern God's will. That's what Romans 12 talks about. It's not blind, it's actually logical. Uh, last time, uh, Tyler Johnson, not Tyler Thompson, not Tyler James, Tyler Johnson <laughs> preached at Redemption Arcadia. One of the things he said was, uh, one of the things that the Holy Spirit used to convince him that uh, Jesus really was the Messiah and he came to Christ and he became a Christian um, was that in his mind, after reading through the Bible, it was the only logical explanation for evil and how to solve evil was the Messiah. And I remember listening to that going, oh my goodness, that's great news because I thought I was the only one who felt the same way, <laughs> you know, that it just makes sense, you know. It makes sense. So it's actually logical. And here's one other thing. If Christianity were a hoax, if it were just a human movement, if it were just one of the many philosophies, why has it endured for 2,100 years uh, with so much hostility surrounding it? Sooner or later, everything else dies or moves on, but not the church. Jesus said that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church, and that's been true. So in verses 8 and 9, again, it reiterates Paul's teaching from Philippians chapter 1 that sure, it would be nice to be with Jesus and be away from all of this stuff in the world that we don't like, but since God has us here, our aim is to trust him and please him for what he has for us here. I gotta tell you, there's a lot of freedom in that. When, you, when you're holding things very tightly and you let them go, there's a lot of freedom there. And I understand we wanna hold things tightly and there are things that maybe we should, but I'll, I'll tell you, I. I was somebody that held everything very tightly for years. And the more I've let it go, the more freedom I've experienced in my life. It's, it's good news. And then verse 10, we will all appear before Jesus. And so we have to have a spiritual resume to present to Jesus, right? To be able to get in. So what does that spiritual resume look like? Don't be fooled in... By this verse into thinking that you need a long list of good deeds. Indeed, you will have a long list of good works. You will, but not to make you worthy of getting in, but as a result of you being in. Our works are always a response to the grace that have been shown to us. They have nothing to do with uh, making us worthy enough to be saved. My mom came to know the Lord when she was 80. And for a long time, she would say, I'm just not good enough yet to be saved. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I wish the Spirit would open your eyes to the problems with your logic about that. You know, of course you're not good enough. That's the point. That's the point of grace. And then, she, and then the Spirit finally opened her eyes. And she came to Christ. So the top of the resume is really the only part of the resume. I know Jesus, that's it. That's your resume, okay? It's the only thing that matters. And if you have that on your resume, then the reality is, is that you will have all those other good things on your resume because in faith, love, and grace, you will respond with your life in service to God and to his people. Otherwise, understand, if works are what save us, then Jesus lied to the thief on the cross. 
And if Jesus is a liar, we got issues, right? Okay. And this is a good thing to understand. This resume of response to the gospel is, what, uh, is, is a setup for what Paul writes next. Maybe one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It's the ministry of reconciliation. But he kind of has a prelude in verses 11 to, through 15 before he gets there. So let's start there. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we, are, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, or another word is constrains us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for, for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, one of the problems in Corinth and in many other places, including today's places, is that people believe that outward signs um, and signals of virtue and attractiveness are what can save us. Outward, so they call it virtue signaling. Again, it points out that the only thing that matters is this. Has you, have you given your life to Christ and is your heart, your mind, your soul being transformed by that? So look at 12 again, verse 12. Let me reread it. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you will be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance um, and is not about what is in the heart. So what's going on there is two things. First of all, outward appearances. We know for a fact that Paul was a very homely, even ugly guy. I'll just use the U word, ugly. U-G-L-Y, he ain't got no alibi. He's ugly. What, what? He's ugly, okay? I mean, it's just common knowledge, okay? The guy was nothing to look at, okay? That would not be admired by those in Corinth who are... Uh, going to uh, L.A. Fitness and working out and all that. I mean, that was kind of what was going on. The Corinthian elite were pretty proud of their outward appearances. Okay? So Paul and his guys would get ridiculed for that. Okay? But also, second, Paul and his, command, and his companions were considered crazy because of their animated preaching of Jesus and that they worshiped a man who was crucified. So they made fun of Paul for that, too. We know that's a fact as well. So no matter what, outer appearance or outer behavior, they were being judged on those circumstances. But true judgment starts on the inside. That's, that's 1 Corinthians 4, 16, which we looked at last week. Though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. And then when we get to... Verse 16, the beginning of the last paragraph of, verse, of chapter 5, we see how Paul goes right for that jugular. We no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. We no longer regard anyone according to their outward appearances. You know, the Pharisees, which Paul was, were all about outward appearances. Paul gives us his spiritual pharisaical resume in Philippians chapter 3. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. All of these great things, outward appearance. And then what does he say? He says, I count all of that as the Greek word is skubala. Anybody know what the translation of skubala is? 
crap. <laughs> I count all of it crap compared to the surpassing knowledge of the surpassing glory of knowing Christ. So those outward appearances, he's saying, don't matter anymore. We no longer regard anyone according to the flesh, according to their outward appearances, because outward appearances are nothing but a fooling machine. You know, social media has, of course, sort of exacerbated this problem as well. How often do you see somebody post themselves on social media when they're at their worst? Anybody see that? How many of you are not on social media? <laughs> okay, yeah, neither am I. I uh, it was three years ago that I purged myself of the demons of Twitter, and I've been better for it anyway. I was going to give it up for Lent, you know? And I started early, and then I didn't miss it, so I just I gave it up. Anyway, please remember, real life is what happens between social media posts. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, it's true. Okay. Um, <laughs> I just go a little deeper on this. It, you know, 20 years ago when I would do premarital, I'd say, how did you meet? And it was like at church, at work, at school, at a bar, you know, whatever, you know, happy hour, whatever. I don't know. Uh, now it's just more than half. It's, you know, on, on a dating app. Okay. And then if I ask the right questions and we have enough time, I, I get some great stories. Not about how they met. That's always a good story. It's all the bad ones that happened before they met. You know? And they're like, do you know how many people are out there on these dating apps that are nothing like their profile? <laughs> their profiles are just filled with lies. You know, Guys lie about their height. What do you do when you meet her in person? Hi. <laughs> I know I'm going up and down, but, you know, they lie about their height. By the way, research has shown that, too. It's one of the top lies that guys will lie about. If you, you know what one of the other big lies is that guys put in their profiles? I like to take walks. <laughs> you know why they say that? See, it, it communicates that they have a sensitive side. Okay. So you're dating for six weeks, and the third time she says, hey, you want to go for a walk, and you're shoveling Doritos in your face at, in front of the TV? No, I'm busy. She's like, okay, you really don't like to take walks, do you? Not really. <laughs> but I got you to go out with me, didn't I? <laughs> so anyway, I love social media. I love talking about social media. <laughs> and then verse 14 is a somewhat famous verse. The love of Christ constrains us or controls us. So that word there is actually a word where uh, it's, it's kind of like, um, again, I've talked about this before, uh, in the 70s and 80s when U-Haul um, trucks had a governor on the accelerator and you couldn't go faster than 55 miles an hour. Okay, apparently they still have governors, but you can go like 75 now. But back then, they, you couldn't go faster than 55. Uh, so you, you, pre you could press your foot through the floorboard on that accelerator. It wasn't going to, it wasn't going to go past her at 55. Uh, the love of Christ, if we're really in touch with it, in tune with it, the filling of the Holy Spirit, it constrains us. It controls us. It keeps us from making mistakes. It infuses wisdom into our everyday life. Now, of course, we can, we can live our life not paying any attention to it, of course, and sometimes we do that. Okay, Jackie does it all the time. I never do, but, um, 
But, but if the love of Christ is there and you're really pressing into that, it does act sort of as a governor, you know, something that helps you count to 10 maybe or 100 before you do something or say something, okay? Um, and, and what that constraining or controlling love leads to is an understanding that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. And as a result, we start living for others as well. And that takes us to one of the most revered paragraphs in the New Testament. This is where we'll end tonight, 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, It's so funny. In 16, Paul is admitting that he once thought of Jesus as just this crazy mortal dude. Remember, Jesus and Paul were the same age, and Paul was, was around Jerusalem for the, entire, the entirety of Jesus' three years of ministry, even though a lot of that was spent up north in Galilee. Uh, but Paul knew who Jesus was. He was around that. He was the guy taking the cloaks when they killed uh, Stephen early on in Acts. So he was around all of this, and he just thought Jesus was this crazy mortal guy. But then Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and that changes everything. And he now knows that Jesus is the real deal, and he can no longer regard him according to the flesh, but rather according to the Spirit of God. And that's how we should regard Jesus as well. And that means he can no longer regard anyone else according to the flesh, but rather proclaim the gospel For the gospel is spiritual, it gives life, and it makes us new creations. And that takes us to verse 17, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. So that's really good news. Um, I know we struggle. Uh, Paul talks about this struggle in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, and even into 8, chapter 8. He talks about how I, I, I know what the Spirit is calling me to do, uh, but my flesh tells me to do something else. There's this constant battle. We're all in this constant um, battle. And yet, the fact that we know we're in this constant battle is evidence that we are a new creation. Because before, you wouldn't have the battle. I was 27 when I came to Christ. I never battled with any of this stuff. Then I came to Christ. Now I'm suddenly battling with it. That's evidence. I, I, sometimes I'll sit with people and they'll say, I don't know if I'm really saved. I'm still sinning. Okay, believe it or not, it's evidence that you're saved, that you're worried about the fact that you're still sinning. Okay, now I'm not saying go out and sin and be happy about it. Paul even talks about that in Romans. Okay, should I uh, sin all the more so that grace might abound all the more? No, of course not. That's not the point of grace. Okay, but the fact that you're aware of it is an indication that you are a new creation, and that's a good thing. 
And then verse 18 says, this is all from God. He reminds us over and over in this paragraph. By the way, this is all from God. Yes, he's working through you, but it's all him. It's all his power. Okay? God is the one who does the reconciling, but you're obedient by going out and having this ministry, telling people about the gospel. Results are never up to us. Again, that's very freeing for me. Okay? And I told you the story about you know, the expansion Sunday when we... Tyler James and I were like, golly, we're not proclaiming the gospel today. How awful is that? And then somebody gives their life to Christ that very Sunday during communion time. And Tyler and I are looking at each other going, yeah, it really isn't up to us, is it? (laughs) God is sovereign. God's in control. And verse 20 is an example of that. Uh, Because we are ambassadors, we do implore others, but God is in charge of the results. By the way, I can't read this passage without thinking of Larry Wright. So Larry Wright, I, I, I call Tom Schrader my spiritual father um, for all kinds of reasons. If you want to know what they are, uh, we'll have a latte together, almond milk. Um, but uh, Tom's spiritual father was Larry Wright. Okay? Uh, Larry passed away maybe 20 years ago. Uh, he went out the way every preacher should go out he went out walking up on Sunday morning to preach, <laughs> had a heart attack and died. You know? <laughs> so it's like, it's like you know, going out on the horse. You know? You're on the horse and you go out. Okay. So anyway, um, Larry was a great Bible teacher and a great story uh, behind who he was. Uh, in the 60s, he was the um, most popular and highest paid disc jockey uh, in top 40 radio in Phoenix. Okay, he was on, uh, uh, it was called KRUX was the radio station. It was an AM station. This is back when AM was, was actually had music on it. Okay. And, and he was known as Lucky Lawrence. And he was like the Prince of Phoenix. People would call him the Prince of Phoenix. And he was a womanizer and an alcoholic and a heavy, just all of this stuff, you know. And then he meets this woman, Susan, and they get married and... Uh, the marriage is a disaster because <laughs> he's a womanizer and an alcoholic and you know, all this stuff. And um, so she starts going to a Bible study and uh, her life is transformed. So then she starts inviting Larry and Larry's making fun of her. This is never going to last. You're an idiot. Those people are crazy and all this stuff. And so finally he agrees, all right, I'll go. And so he started going to this Bible study with her and, and just to be defiant and rebellious, he would Prepare for the Bible study by reading the passage, drinking scotch, and smoking cigars. So he would do that. God used this, though, to save him. Next thing you know, he's giving up the DJing and everything else, and he becomes the most noted Bible teacher in Maricopa County. He was absolutely fantastic. So I can't read this passage without thinking of him because he would always say of this passage, you know, you and I as Christians, we have a wonderful job title. It's magnificent. We are ambassadors. Isn't that cool? We're ambassadors. And then he says, uh, the problem is, is that we have a terrible job description. We're slaves. We're slaves to Jesus. We're servants of Christ. And then verse 21. The shepherd dies for the, sheep's, for the sins of the sheep. The one who never sins pays for the sins of those who always sin. Though the world closes the door to us, the door to the kingdom is open to us through Christ. 
The world claims to seek truth, but the truth has sought us and saved us. That's pretty cool. And I want you to be aware, there are people who would really love to be able to pervert, false teachers want to pervert the word of God. This is just one example. Some have tried to claim this verse, verse 21, means that Jesus actually became a sinner at one point in his life. Okay? That he sinned when he was here on earth. So I'll tell you, it's interesting what people do to try to get themselves off the hook, you know. So finally, this is one of the most important verses because, uh, those, uh, because of those who, who, uh, who claim that the Bible never said that Jesus was without sin. There are people who claim that. The Bible never said Jesus was without sin. Well, what about this verse? Okay. It's also, I've heard this before, Jesus never claimed to be God. Okay. Uh, read John chapter 10 and see if you still come away with that conclusion about what um, about Jesus never claiming to be God. If, if not, he was misunderstood then by the uh, professional religious people because they wanted to kill him because they said he claimed to be God. So, interesting to me. Anyway, on to chapter 6, next, not next week. We will not meet next week. It's the day before Thanksgiving, and we usually have pie palooza, but we had fallapalooza, so eat pie at home Wednesday night, and don't come here, okay? Stop by Pie Snob, 16th Street in Maryland, grab a piece of pie, go home and eat it, and enjoy your Thanksgiving. Uh, chapter 6, uh, Paul, again, is not onto a new thought in chapter 6, but he takes this reconciliation and salvation thing to a higher and more personal level. Level. Um, we don't actually get into uh, new topics until chapter 8 in this book. We finally get into new topics. He finally changes his course, chapters 8 and 9. And then chapter 10 is when the wheels come off again. Between chapter 9 and chapter 10, he gets new information that the people in Corinth are really mad at him and making accusations. And so Paul goes off in chapter 10. It's kind of fun. Anyway, let me pray. God, thank you for your word and its truth, and I pray that we would uh, recognize and understand that your love constrains us. We're filled with your Holy Spirit that leads, guides, and directs us and gives us uh, wisdom. Help us to press into that and lean into that and live that way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all Sunday, the end of We Want a King series.